Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged this society based on science and technology, in which nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis in biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm your weekly podcast host, and today we're going to talk about a topic that we've covered before, but we're going to take a slightly different angle today. We're going to talk about cow peas. And cow peas are one of these regional staples that have tremendous roles for various families or for various populations. And there are some existential threats. And then there are biotechnology solutions. Our guest today is, is Professor T.J. Higgins. He's an honorary fellow at CSIRO in Canberra, Australia. That's their national research institution. Welcome to the podcast, T.J. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's very nice to talk to you. I had a wonderful time in Canberra, and it was great to spend some time with you there. Uh, really a neat place. Um, if you could tell me a little bit more, though, let's let's go back to Cowpea. Why is the cowpea important to Africa? Cowpea, also called black-eyed peas, probably better known to you as black-eyed peas, and frequently called beans in Africa, is a very important source of protein in the diet of probably two to three hundred million people in West Africa. Yeah, so two to three hundred million people. So. This is uh, what most people might consider a minor crop, but that's the population of the United States. I mean, that's it's a lot of people, and uh, the, it is a staple for that group. And can you tell us a little bit more about where it's grown in in, in Africa? And you know, are these small farms or really large producers? So cowpeas are grown <clears throat> largely in Nigeria, Niger, Burkina Faso, Ghana. These are the major uh, producing countries. Nigeria is a major consumer. Uh, the farmers who grow cowpeas are mostly smallholder farmers. I would say people who have probably about an acre of land or so. So they're very different to Australian farmers, for one thing, and certainly very different to American farmers. So this is a very important uh, part of their diet. And if they're lucky, uh, a very important source of some income because they can sell any excess grain they have in the in the market. They don't often have uh, much excess grain, and in fact, supplies are now uh, under great stress, and the prices of cowpeas are going up. 
we need to increase production of cowpeas in Africa. So we have this uh, very important food staple. What's the big threat that farmers are running into in their production of cowpea? Cowpeas are, are very nutritious for humans, but they're also very nutritious for insects, unfortunately. So some of the biggest threats to cowpea production are, in fact, insect pests. They do have other problems, too, uh, like, like virus diseases, but insects are the primary threats. And the biggest problem in the insect collection is uh, Maruca, a pod borer. This is in the, it's a moth in the Lepidopteran family and can be devastating. It varies, of course, from year to year, but they, farmers can lose, you know, sometimes 50 to 80% of their crop to just to this one insect alone. So that's reasonably devastating. Well, how did you get involved in this research? Well, I got involved uh, at the request of a group of people in in, uh, in West Africa at a scientific meeting that I was invited to in back in around, I think, 2001. This uh, a very, uh, well, a very convincing group of people led largely by Larry Murdoch from Purdue University and, and B.B. Singh, the, the, the cowpea breeder at that time in West Africa, approached me and said, well, they had been trying everything to introduce resistance to this insect pest into cowpea. And they wondered if some of the technology that I was working on at the time, which was using gene technology in other legumes that were important in Australia, peas and uh, chickpeas and lupins, whether that technology might be applicable to cowpea as well. So at that time, uh, I was... I. I I didn't know very much about cowpea, and since then I have become very interested in this important food source because of its importance, especially in countries like Nigeria, where the population, you know, the massive population that they have there is likely to double in the next uh, 25 to 30 years. Well, you mentioned, you know, at this time. So what kind of time frame are we looking at as to when you started working in this crop? Well, I started working in this crop about 2003 or so. So it's been a, long, a long-term activity. Um, but this is typical, of course, of any genetic improvement in any crop. It, it usually takes about 15 years to go from, you know, start to finish, basically. And you talked about this threat, this uh, maruca uh, moth, or a butterfly. Oh, is it a moth or a butterfly? Well, it's in the Lepidopteran family. It's actually a moth, but many people call it a butterfly. But technically, it's a moth. Yeah, I've heard both, and I, you know, now I kind now I know for sure. But uh, so, how does this affect farmers when you start looking at the losses that happen? And you know, is it something that's getting worse with time? It's well, it's been around for a long time already. Uh, but it is having a more devastating effect. I think I'm not sure if this is due to climate change, but like many other insects, I'm sure it is affected by climate change as well. The moth, the adult moth, lays eggs on the uh, flower of the of the cowpea, and the young larvae that's hatched out of it, it's a caterpillar, uh, moves into the flower, 
starts eating the flower, and if it survive, if the flower survives and a pod starts to develop, then the moth, the, the caterpillar gets bigger, moves into the onto the pod and in, into the seeds. And in fact, what happens is that the farmer doesn't get any yield uh, to speak of. Yield typically uh, these days is about 300 to 500 kilos per, per hectare. Whereas if, if the farmer was able to spray with chemical insecticides, they could get yields of you know, 1.7 to 2 tons per, per hectare. So you can see the effect of insects in general is devastating. Well, you mentioned chemical controls. What are the current strategies to control the insect? Well, when I started this project, farmers were basically not able to afford insecticide, chemical insecticide. But that has changed in, in the last decade or so. Chemical insecticides coming from Asia are a bit cheaper. And now farmers are starting to spray with uh, insecticides because they need the yield, you know, because uh, production has dropped so low and demand is so great that they now have started to use insecticides. And they can spray anything from five times to 10 times in a season. So this is a serious cost for them. And it's also, there are some health risks associated with these insecticides because sometimes they, the label is not very clear to them because they're not, it's not necessarily in a language that they can understand. And, and so there are some risks at spraying so often. Well, if it follows the trends that I've seen in other countries uh, like Bangladesh, you're still able to use um, organophosphates and carbamates and other things that are really in reserve situations in the rest of the industrialized world. So, you know, you say they spray a lot, but are they also spraying chemistries that are a little, um, that in many cases are being phased out? Um, are, are they still using the old school stuff? They're still using the old school stuff. And oftentimes those uh, chemicals are not necessarily approved for use on a, on a food crop like cowpea. They might be uh, approved for use on a crop like cotton and are not really appropriate for use on cowpea. So I would, I would hesitate to say that we shouldn't be using chemical insecticides because they have proved and are proving very useful, but they do need to be used with care. Today we're speaking with Dr. TJ Higgins. He's an honorary fellow at CSIRO, which is Australia's national research organization. We're talking about the BT cowpea and a biotech solution which could have profound effects in Nigeria and other countries in Africa. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. It's me, Kevin. And it's uh, time to talk about crisis and opportunity, how these things always travel together. Now, I'll say that my heart is a little bit heavy, and I hope you understand. This is one of the last episodes of the Talking Biotech podcast, at least as we know it. I started this effort almost five years ago, and I learned a lot along the way, and I'm so proud of the archive of outstanding guests 
in the really great spectrum of science that we've explored together. Thank you for all the great feedback and all the wonderful emails, all the kind tweets and things that you've said. It's been fantastic. Unfortunately, my employers demanded that I stop this podcast. I've been told very clearly that it's not good for the institution, that my communication efforts negatively affect the university. These decisions are based on the fervent anti-GMO world and also a few marginal people in science communication that do not appreciate what I do. They've targeted me because of the visibility that my media garners. My therapist calls it malignant envy. It's, it's one or two people. You know who they are. Just review who my critics are. And I could throw them under the bus here, but I won't. The podcast is done 100% on my own time and budget. I buy the microphones, I buy the bandwidth, I buy everything. All of the disclaimers in the world are not enough to create a comfortable distance between my passions to communicate science and my role as a university research scientist. So what to do? Um, I can't let the franchise die. I'm searching for a new host. I need somebody else to be the voice of this podcast. We have four to 6,000 downloads a week. Think about that. That's huge. We can even monetize this and be able to pay somebody for their efforts. It just can't be me. I'll arrange the interviews. I'll produce the episodes. I'll run the website, and I'll do it all at my own personal expense. I've filled out the forms and already asked the university for permission to do this on my own time as outside work, and we'll see what happens there, but, but without being the voice. Right now, I can't defy orders. I love my lab and students. I love a paycheck and health insurance. <laughs> it's pretty good stuff. And I have to play by the rules, even if it's counter to everything I believe in. Maybe someday I'll understand the wisdom. The folks ending these outreach efforts, they're not the enemy. They're the same victims as we are. The, the same victims of bad people that seek to remove scientific voices from an important dialogue. It's an intransigent minority that screams louder than the consensus. And that's what motivates universities to take action, even if it means silencing good science and good scientists. I forgive them. I hope for a day when universities again can become the beacons of scientific dissemination rather than the pawns of political expedience, brand preservation, and massaging a media that does not cross the desires of wealthy donors. The real enemies are hunger, preventable disease, threats to farming, Denial of science, ignorance everywhere, and all of the other issues we address here every single week. And I'll say it again, the opinions of the, <laughs> the podcast, are uh, the host and the guests, are not necessarily those of the University of Florida, its faculty or students, and it's produced entirely independently of the University of Florida. Maybe I could do this with a funny voice and a pseudonym. That never works out. <laughs> As always, thank you again for listening, and... Help me make this important vehicle even more effective in its next incarnation. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with TJ Higgins. He's an honorary fellow at CSIRO, the National Research Laboratories of Australia, uh, in Canberra, Australia, a beautiful city, a very interesting city. <laughs> um, so let's talk about um, the solution 
Now we have this problem of a maruca moth that is burrowing into pods, using, causing farmers, smallholder farmers, to use large amounts of, uh, of, of insecticides, some of which may not be properly labeled whole scenario here. But there seems to be a good solution. So what is that proposed solution? Well, the, the solution that I came up with was based very much on the experiences that people had had with using gene technology in other crops. I'm thinking now particularly of corn, maize, also called maize here, uh, and, in, and in cotton, and in more recently in soybean, to control other insects in the same sort of, in the same family, not the same insect, but similar insects. And I thought that this would be a possible solution in cowpea. And so we set about in, in the early 2000s, set about developing a system for cowpea that would allow us to transfer uh, genes like that into, into cowpea. The genes that I'm talking about come from the soil microbe, Bacillus thuringiensis, often abbreviated to BT. We chose first a gene uh, called TRI-1AB, that's crystal protein 1AB, and converted that bacterial gene into a, basically a plant gene so that it would work in the plants. So that after reconstructing that gene, we spent a few years developing the, the system so that we could get that genetic information into cowpea, and eventually we succeeded in about after about three years of sustained research, which was funded at that stage by the Rockefeller Foundation. We then proceeded to make uh, a lot of transgenic, as we call them, lines, li independent lines, each containing the BT gene. And we spent several years testing them in the laboratory, in the greenhouse, and in the insectary here in Australia before we selected uh, lions to send to Africa. We sent them uh, first to Nigeria, where with my colleagues there, Professor Mohammed Ishiaku and his colleagues uh, conducted confined field trials in Zaria in Nigeria. Now the results of those field trials were promising, very promising, and over the next several years we conducted further trials searching for the ideal line to use in a conventional backcrossing program. We also moved from Nigeria into Burkina Faso and into Ghana, into Ghana and did confined field trials in those countries as well. Well, you mentioned the gene from Bacillus thuringiensis, and I know people who've been longtime listeners to the podcast have heard this brought up a dozen different times. But for people who are new to the podcast, could you please explain what is this thing? What is the cry gene um, encode? And how does it work on the insect? So the, 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 B, the BT gene, as I said, is, a, is, a, is also called a cry gene, cry being uh, an abbreviation for crystal protein. This is, this is a protein that's produced by the soil microbe. <clears throat> and it, in fact, it, it binds to the gut of the caterpillar. The protein binds to the gut of the caterpillar, causing the gut to collapse, basically, and release all of its contents, and the caterpillar 
dies. So this protein is very effective at, at doing this. It doesn't bind to proteins in our gut, for instance, and it has been used by uh, organic farmers for probably more than 50 years in, in horticulture uh, and is known to be very safe for humans, but it's very specific for the, the moth family of insects. doesn't affect other insects. Sometimes I think that's unfortunate because there are other insect pests that I would like to be able to uh, tackle, but it is very specific for, for this particular uh, moth family. Yeah, for years I've always had people tell me, how can it be safe? If it, if it kills an insect, how can we eat it and it not hurt us? And we always talk about chocolate and dogs, about how we can eat chocolate, but you'd never feed it to your dog because of a species-specific toxicity that comes from an inability to metabolize something uh, you know, inside the chocolate. This is a very similar scenario. It only works on specific insects. And there's different BTs that target different insects. Is that right? Is that right? That is also true, yes. There are uh, not all, there are many uh, crystal proteins in nature, but not all of them are effective against uh, the moths, for instance. Some are effective against brucids. Uh, against other flies, even against nematodes. So yes, there is a great range of such proteins in nature and they have different specificities. So in this case, the plant is now making its own protection from the insect. How has it performed in field trials? So this inbuilt protection, as you say, is has performed very well in the, in the field. The, we have tested about 30 different lines in the field over the last uh, 10 years or so, and have finally uh, selected one so for the breeders to use in their breeding programs. They, what has happened in the field is that we, what we do to test the effectiveness of this protein is to in, infest the fields artificially with very high levels of insect, uh, uh, very large numbers of caterpillars. This, would, this is probably higher than would ever occur naturally, but we want to be sure that this uh, gene is effective in the field. So we infest the plants with very large numbers of caterpillars, probably 500 caterpillars over a period of three or four weeks during flowering, and then measure grain yield at the, at the end, at harvest time. And while they, the parent lines, the non-transgenic parent lines, often yield no seed at all, or very low levels of seed, uh, the transgenics continue to yield very high levels of uh, grain, just as high as if there were no insects there at all. That's great news. And you mentioned that this was being done in several countries. You must have a number of collaborators. You've mentioned some already, but who are the critical collaborators throughout Africa? We have a project like this requires a lot of collaborators, and we do have a lot of international collaborators, not only from the Western world, but also particularly important in Africa. So my, my important colleagues at the Institute of Agricultural Research in Zaria, in Nigeria, they have been, of course, absolutely vital entomologists, agronomists, plant breeders. I mentioned the, the project leader there, Professor Mohamed Ishiaku, but I have similar uh, colleagues 
in uh, Burkina Faso, Dr. Benuet there and his colleagues. He's the, he's the cowpea, the national cowpea breeder in Burkina. Uh, and similarly, uh, Mamouni in Ghana, he's uh, the national breeder for Ghana uh, and has also got a range, a number of very important colleagues there too in agronomy and entomology. So projects like these cannot be done by one or two or three individuals. It does require a highly motivated and integrated team. Well, we talked about the benefits and how this product seems to be working well, but what are the risks? I know that when we talk about corn or cotton, we do see instances of resistance that occur from the overuse of this technology, um, maybe without the necessary forages, that kind of thing. And so what do you see in cowpea? In cowpea, we expect the same sort of thing. Every technology has its limitations, as you, as you would know. <clears throat> And we uh, are of the view, too, that this technology would have a short lifetime unless it's well managed. And by managing it well, I mean uh, good, very good stewardship of the existing lines that we have made and then the future improvement of those lines. So the, this project is coordinated and well managed by the African Agricultural Technology Foundation which is based in Kenya, but has a major office for cowpea work based in Abuja in Nigeria. They, so they are co coordinating the stewardship of, of, this, uh, of this product. My role for the future is to add additional genes with different mechanisms of action to reduce the risk that the insects will build up resistance to this. It's, it's my expectation that the insects... <clears throat> will build up resistance to this uh, just like they would to an insecticide, a chemical insecticide. So we need to be ready to counter this with a, an insect resistance management plan, which has already been put in place by the African Agricultural Technology Foundation, AATF, and their, their colleagues. So at the moment, we are busy here in Australia adding an additional gene that uh, has a different mechanism of action, binds to a different protein in the gut of the insect, and greatly reducing the risk that the insects will be able to build up resistance. We are doing field trials at the moment with that second uh, uh, round of uh, BT cowpea. So it's, it's version two of the, of the cowpea. Well, you know, the part of this that really bothers me is that this was developed a long time ago. You said you started taking this on back in 2002, and here we are getting, you know, we're in 2020, and um, it's these things still are not necessarily reaching the farmer, but they're, they're getting close. But what has been the biggest limitation? Uh, the biggest limitation, well, there were technical limitations. Certainly, it took us quite a while to learn how to do this for cowpea because although uh, Purdue University had done a lot of background work in this area, it, it had moved relatively slowly, largely due to lack of funding. But uh, tech, there, it has been slowed down by some of the technical aspects. But, of course, the regulatory uh, burden is also high in order to 
uh, this product will be re is being regulated, and this this also slows things down. But I'm not complaining about regulations really, uh, because they are important to convince the community, the public, that this technology is safe. But that certainly has added to the time that we have needed to get it to the farmers. And of course, funding is also very important. I, I have to say that I, I really congratulate USAID, the US government, for their sustained funding of this work for a, a long period of time. A project like this could never come to fruition without sustained funding. It, it's absolutely critical for the whole thing. Not only are all of our collaborators really important, but the, having sustained funding turned out to be very important as well, just because of the length of the project, as you say. No, but that's really rare these days. It's really hard to find funding for more than two or three years. And so what are the agencies? You mentioned USAID and Rockefeller. Who else has helped to propel this work over the last two decades? This work has been supported by uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, as I said, at the, at the, in the early stages, and then in a very sustained way by USAID uh, and, and CSIRO, my own uh, research organization here in Australia. So that's been the major sources of funding for my part of the project. My part, of course, is only a small part of the overall activity. Uh, there has been lots of work done by the Danforth Center, for instance, Purdue University, and all the agencies in Africa as well, in Nigeria, Burkina Faso, and in Ghana. And, and some work has even started in Malawi, in, eastern, in the eastern part of Africa as well. Well, where is the uh, approval process currently? I, I know that in Nigeria it was getting close, um, or maybe it was already there, but where are we now in Nigeria? The, earlier this year, on January the 22nd, to be precise, we obtained approval from the National Biosafety Agency in Nigeria for the release of uh, the, the first BT cowpea to farmers in Nigeria. So that was a major uh, day of celebration, at least for me, <laughs> and I think, all of my, and of course, for all of my colleagues as well. But I certainly was jumping up and down uh, with delight when that finally, when that finally happened. There were still several other hurdles to overcome, of course. That's just the first uh, de step in deregulation. The next step was to to get permission to release this as new varieties, and this recently, uh, in fact, on December the twelfth, just last week, really, it has been approved by uh, in in Nigeria by the Agricultural Research Council of Nigeria for release as varieties. So now we're at the stage where we can bulk up the seed to uh, for the farmers, and that's in process now. And I'm hoping that within the next year that we will be able to uh, release these seeds directly to the farmer. The farmers have been looking at them already in the field trial, but they are will be able to grow them on their own, in their own place uh, next year, I hope. Well, congratulations on that. It must make you feel really happy. And you know how, how, how fulfilling is this professionally to see 
uh, product of your work and innovation starting to reach those who really need it? I've had a I've had a very lucky lifetime in research, doing a lot of very what you might call very basic research, and during the early part of my career. But but since I've retired over the last ten years or so, this has been uh, a major uh, a major project for me, and it has been very fulfilling to be able to uh, build on the background basic research that I had done and take and translate it into something that can be of benefit to uh, farmers for some time into the future. It it has been very fulfilling. And I greatly, uh, you know, I congratulate my colleagues in Africa and elsewhere around the world for, for their fantastic collaboration and support over that time. And are there other countries that are currently contemplating uh, testing and approval? Yes, Burkina Faso, uh, Ghana, and Malawi are all at various stages in the approval process uh, as well. Uh, Burkina and Ghana are very close to final approval. Not, Not quite there yet, but I'm expecting it any day, hoping for it any day as well. Uh, and I expect that it will, uh, we will get approval in those countries as well. Well, Dr. T.J. Higgins, thank you so much for joining me. If people want to learn more about the project, is there a place where they can read about it more online? They, they can. The, agricultural, the African Agricultural Technology Foundation has a, a very good website, wwwatf uh, africa.org is a great place to start. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. It was really nice to talk to you again. Thank you, Kevin. And, you know, thank you again for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. If you could really do me one good favor, please write a review on iTunes or where you consume your media. Um, There's some unfortunate things brewing that I really would like to get beyond and having uh, notes of support and, uh, and, and enthusiasm for this podcast will be extremely meaningful in some of the discussions I have in front of me here. So um, thank you very much for listening. Please tell a friend, write reviews, uh, (laughs) scratch it in the bathroom walls. I don't care. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech. Sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.